everybody, you're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host today, Charlie Hunt, here with uh, my co-host, Dr. Jen Schneider and Dr. Luke Fowler. And we're going to be talking a little bit today. You know, we've had what feels like years, but uh, I'm being told it's just a, a few months uh, past since the beginning of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And we've been able to observe a lot of different styles of leadership, you know, presidential leadership, leadership of other politicians, and different styles of communication to try and communicate important information about the virus and what people need to know. And so we thought we'd sort of take a step back and assess sort of what's gone on in that area. Jen, I know you sort of studied issues related to this and the kind of language that leaders use. What can you tell us about what you've sort of observed in how our leaders have been kind of communicating during this crisis? And, you know, how, how would you maybe uh, grade the kind of communication we've gotten so far? Well, when I think about communication at the federal level, of course, I don't think it's any surprise to anybody listening that it's, I mean, it's shocking in a lot of ways because it's so different from any sort of presidential communication that we've seen around crises or sort of collective suffering in the past. So this week we've passed the 100,000 mark, folks who have died from coronavirus, and yet there is no sort of unified federal messaging around grieving happening at the federal level. So that is truly remarkable for a sitting president to not have helped a nation that is suffering to grieve in a collective way. So that, that I'm thinking about that as the individualization of grief, like we can't be with our loved ones as they're suffering and dying, and we're sort of left on our own, which I think is psychologically really harmful. There's a pattern that crisis communication is supposed to follow, sort of a empathy and acknowledgement that something awful is happening. That's step one. And then a discussion of what is certain versus what we don't know. That is step two. And then what people can expect next. And instead, there's sort of like um, just a lot of certainty and strong messages about what the president believes to be true, usually scientifically unfounded. And I think that has left a lot of people feeling unmoored from reality. (laughs) I had a difficult time. You know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is in how sort of previous leaders have responded to certain crises. Uh, And I feel like you have a couple of different contrasting styles. You have sort of one style that's maybe more authoritative sort of projecting strength you know at at least setting aside you know what came after with the iraq war and everything you had people think of george w bush after 9 11 and standing on top of the pile of rubble in new york city and and with the megaphone and saying you know they're gonna hear us and and that's sort of one way of at least trying to sort of unify people and then i think sort of in contrasting way about president obama after sandy hook getting up there and speaking and crying and seeing literal tears of empathy coming down his face over dead children. You know, regardless of which you think is more appropriate, and maybe they're appropriate in different circumstances, I'd be curious what, you know, what you think about that. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like Donald Trump is either of those things. He seems kind of only capable of feeling sorry for himself. And 
you know, we've sort of been seeing just all of his grieving on Twitter has been over how unfairly he's treated by social media platforms and by the media. And I, I agree, it's incredibly jarring. But I, I guess I'm I, I'm curious what you feel like this kind of situation might call for, whether it's sort of a projection of strength and stamina and endurance and, and, and you know, helping people sort of feel at ease, or if it's this more empathy kind of, I mean, you mentioned grieving, you know, you know, what's your, what's your kind of take on that? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's different approaches for different requirements, right? So if I'm talking about acknowledging the fact that 100,000 Americans have died, then definitely we need to strike a tone of empathy. And that can be combined with a tone of strength afterwards, like here is what we are going to do. Here are the steps, here is how we're going to tackle it. I don't see the president being sort of systematic in that way, nor have we ever seen him, whether it's sort of hurricane recovery or the coronavirus, showing a lot of empathy for those who have lost folks. When I think about the coronavirus briefings, I think that's different. I think of that more as sort of science communication. I think about maybe good comparisons might be like the Gulf oil spill, for example, where there's a lot of uncertainty about what we're going to do next. The data is changing. Our reliance on the science is complicated. And so I think those sorts of rules about whether or not to communicate strength, we need to set that aside and be willing to guide people through ambiguity. And that's a different skill set. And also, I don't think one that the president is particularly good at. You know, I also say, um, I think a lot of the the trouble with the Trump White House and dealing with the crisis communication here is generally how they've undermined trust in government over over the last several years, right? Then I, I can just remember, um, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, I was living in Mississippi and, and seeing H- Haley Barber, the governor, come out and speak, and you just had this feeling at the end of his speech that, all right, everything's going to be all right. Like government is going to deal with this. The same thing with George Bush after 9/11, and largely if you've watched Brad Little's like press conferences in the last couple of weeks, like you get that same feeling like all right like there's a lot of uncertainty but somebody there's an adults in the room they're going to work through this like i can trust that they're not just going to leave this hanging out there but when you really watch donald trump it is this opposite feeling which is like what is going on here it doesn't feel like anybody's really got their thumb on the pulse and i think that's really like his strategy over the last you know several years has been to undermine that i mean i really think it's coming back in a negative way um into his white house now is that we can't really trust the things he says because they're all over the place Yeah, I mean, if you think about sort of the Trump administration being the post-truth administration, that's the exact opposite of what you really want in the middle of a, a pandemic. And I think it's why a lot of scholars are saying not only are we dealing with a pandemic, we're also dealing with an infodemic where the sort of the shared truth and shared experience we might have as Americans has really been undermined in the interest of partisanship. Well, and I think, Luke, you said sort of a key word there, which is strategy. Like this is, in a a way, it's really tragic that this is happening during an election year while he is running for re-election because it feels like he has decided, and I actually don't think he's right, (laughs) that the way that he can win is by feeding into and stoking people's fears about government, about anyone who sort of dares to cross him and sort of stoking anxiety and cultural resentment and racial resentment. And these are the things he did in the run up to the 2018 midterms. It's certainly the kinds of things he did running up to uh, the 2016 election and sort of, you know, stoking anxiety about Hillary Clinton. 
you can see he's doing the same things about Joe Biden now. And to put it lightly, it's too bad that that is sort of what his focus is. I think generally we hope that we would elect leaders that are, if not putting those things aside completely, because we know they're politicians, they're thinking about their reelection, but, you know, frankly, thinking about ways that they can appeal to as many people as possible. But that just doesn't seem to be what he's doing now. And it seems like he's kind of really overestimating the effectiveness of a strategy like that, aside from, you know, what it takes to sort of be the type of person who just has no grieving process at all for 100,000 people dead. And um, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it seems like he's just taking the playbook that he used in in 2016 and, uh, and applying it here. And I think you're points a good one, Charlie. We're seeing there's a lot of really effective governors across the nation who are doing good crisis communication, good empathetic communication, and their approval ratings are really high. So we'll see what this looks like moving forward. But I, yeah, it does seem like it could backfire for him. Well, on that note, I think we'll take a, a short break and then we'll, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about, uh, about crisis communication Good communication, bad communication, uh, and everything in between. We'll be right back. Back to the Big Tent here on Radio Boise. Uh, We're talking crisis communication today, particularly in the era of COVID-19, where good communication from our leaders, I think we can all agree, is of really the utmost importance. And uh, Jen, something you touched on in the last segment that I think is really important is science communication and helping people know what's going on. I mean, I, I was thinking about while we were talking in the last segment was, it's always important for citizens to know what's going on just to sort of feel secure and feel like they, you know, their leaders have a grip on the crisis. But particularly now, it feels like it's a kind of crisis where there is clearly a role for us all to play, everybody. And Therefore, it's kind of more important than ever that we understand what's going on and what's effective and what isn't. Uh, You know, what kind of things, you know, particularly in the coronavirus briefing, daily briefings that have been happening, you know, what were some of the things that you were looking for from either our sort of political leaders like the president or from uh, some of the sort of the the health experts like uh, like Dr. Fauci? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges we're facing here is that we want there to be a really clean, linear relationship between what science tells us and what behaviors we should do. But this is a new crisis. It's posing new challenges to our scientific understandings. And so it's going to change. And so the behaviors that it might demand of us change over time. So we're talking about an entire culture. We're trying to get everybody on board with some new behaviors, which are really challenging for us. We can talk about why. But so for example, early on in the coronavirus crisis, we were told there's no reason to wear masks. It's not going to prevent the virus. And now we are being told, oh, actually, masks are helpful, but only certain types of masks. And our understanding about how we should wear those masks and what they should be made of is still evolving. So that's because science itself evolves, right? So science is actually this slow-moving institution where a group might put forward a theory or a finding, and then other groups of scientists rush in to test that finding to make sure that it's robust, and they may need to adjust that knowledge based on what they find. And people say, well, then how can we depend on science at all? Or isn't science just bunk? No, no, this is how science works. This is like how we test knowledge. But it really, I think, poses challenges for us when we're looking for hard and fast information about how to act. 
Well, and I think you see both sort of regular citizens and, you know, politicians who are sort of scrambling to get a handle on this sort of impatient with this scientific process, though sort of in the scheme of scientific processes, frankly, the amount of find of, of things we've been able to find out, I say we, I didn't do this research, the amount of findings that the <laughs> health experts and actual scientists have been able to find out about this in such a short amount of time actually is pretty impressive. Like this is because this is a new virus. This isn't something like the flu or AIDS that we have had years and years and years to study. And now here's our best guess at how we go into it. We're sort of learning things as we go along and as we are watching sort of people suffer every day. And, and that seems to, to make it kind of all the more difficult. And, and I think watching people like Dr. Fauci, you know, one thing I always notice when I see him speak about things and I see reporters ask him, oh, so like, should we wear a mask or how often should we go outside or should I clean my groceries that have been just been dropped off? His response is sort of loaded with uncertainty on purpose. But that sort of goes against sort of every impulse that like a politician has, right, which is to show strength and be certain and things like that. And I think that's a really interesting kind of contrast that we've seen in in these kind of communication styles. Well, and Charlie, doesn't that sort of have sort of interesting uh, run ups against what we know from like political psychology? Like, I think there's been some work done that show that conservatives prefer sort of very clear answers, more authoritarian Mm -hmm. type communication and leadership, whereas liberals maybe tend as a group to be more interested in the collective, more tolerant of nuance. Right. Like uh, liberals tend to score higher in personality tests of, of meaning scientific personality tests, not like Myers-Briggs, no offense to Myers-Briggs, love Myers-Briggs, but uh, test- or like what I might take on BuzzFeed. Yes, exactly. Right, it's not yes, that. Exactly. Okay. Uh, liberals tend to test higher in areas like openness to experience and sort of openness to new ideas, whereas conservatives do test higher in uh, on sort of the authoritarian scale. And that doesn't—that's a term that when those findings are lobbed out, rub conservatives the wrong way. And I get why, but it it means authoritarian, not in the sense that like they love authoritarian oppressive regimes per se, but more that they value authority and order. That's sort of the nature of conservatism, liking things the way they are and wanting to be certain about how the world works. But this is the kind of crisis that throws all of that up into the air because we don't, we know comparatively little about the virus. And so, you know, I think that's sort of getting, as always, getting back to Donald Trump, I think that's part of why we see him sort of always on the hunt for this sort of silver bullet thing that he's been so over the moon about hydroxychloroquine or whatever it is, and now is taking it apparently because he's determined to have that certainty. But he seems kind of unable to accept that this is just, that's just not going to be the case with this for a little while, at least not until we have a vaccine. I mean, I would say just as an academic, uh, I would go as far as call myself a scientist that does this and is in the public space. Like I constantly find that like the average American doesn't really understand the science and scientific process. Like the things that we do in our office seem to be behind this black question mark box. And we're supposed to just throw out uh, like findings and say this. And I think me and Jen both have a lot of experience with this because we look in, we study environmental policy, which is very much, you know, in the the technical scientific objective realm, but there's a lot of uncertainty there and how to figure all of this out and so we get questions that want us to be certain we're like that certainty just doesn't exist not in the way that you're looking for and this is just the nature of science and people do not 
believe like, and when we give those answers, I'm always looked at like, well, you're just making this up. Like you're less valid as a scientist because you can't give certain answers. And that makes it very difficult to try to communicate science to a public that doesn't really understand science. Boy, that's exactly where I was going to go is that for me, this coronavirus crisis is really reminiscent of a lot of the battles that have been happening over climate change for decades. And I think whenever you have sort of scientific uncertainty butting up against uh, mixed cultural values, you're going to have this problem with how to effectively communicate uncertainty and promote behavior change. I think on the other hand, though, I think about how massive are the changes that we're being asked to adopt so quickly right now? Social distancing, staying at home, wearing masks. I mean, wearing masks in public really is almost like creating a new taboo, a new cultural taboo within a matter of months, right? We can't see what people's facial expressions are. I notice when I wear my masks, people often don't want to make eye contact with you. Um, it changes our, our body language. It changes how we interact with one another, how we move through the world. And so all of this um, partisanship and rancor is totally real. It's corrosive. And on the other hand, massive, massive cultural behavioral change happening on a, such a short time scale. It's pretty remarkable. I've been really, I totally agree, Jen. I've been really shocked at how quickly people have adjusted to a reality of wearing masks. I mean, in my intermittent trips to the grocery store, noticing in the early stages, you know, I felt like I was one of the only people wearing masks and I felt kind of silly and like, oh, am I just being, am I overblowing this? Now it's, there are only one or two people in the grocery store ever without a mask. And it's one of these things that people have been very quick to adjust to, very quick to, shockingly quick, I think, to acknowledging the importance of staying home even months into the crisis, even after they've lost their jobs. And it's something I think we, we saw this week, you know, projected onto this fight between Trump and Biden about wearing a mask, you know, Biden now sort of proudly going out in public and wearing a mask on Memorial Day to, to lay the reef at, at a veteran's grave and, and, and Trump sort of steadfastly refusing to wear a mask and kind of taking pride in it. And and you see this kind of that even this something like this is becoming somewhat polarizing. But in reality, actually, most Americans, even most Republicans favor the idea of wearing a mask uh, and, and taking these precautions. And so it's sort of one more way in which it feels like the president is kind of whittling himself into sort of a smaller and smaller space for these kinds of, of ideas. Yeah, and and especially remarkable given that I think there's some really interesting gender politics around wearing a mask, and Trump sort of positions himself as being hyper-masculine, and um, mask wearing for for some is seen right now as effeminate or as sort of fear-based behavior. Um, there's been some interesting reporting and analysis on that. So, um, you know, I think Trump sort of again occupying that space that he occupied in 2016 as sort of the hyper-masculine, uh, I don't know, patriarchal figure against the f feminized opponent. So, But that's coming up against what a lot of people are understanding about this virus. Absolutely. So I think uh, we're going to take one more short break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to stop talking about the president, but we're going to talk about some, some other truly incredible politicians who have said some of the truly dumbest things about the coronavirus. Uh, we're going to have a little fun making fun of these politicians when we come back. Stay tuned. 
All right, welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise, and uh, we decided to uh, wrap up today's uh, episode or today's show um, discussing crisis communication with uh, what I found to be very entertaining over the last couple of weeks, which is some of the dumb things that people have said or just some of the mind-boggling statements that have come out of our elected leaders. Uh, one that I'm particularly fond of making fun of is Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, who said a couple of weeks ago uh, that he had only found out in the last 24 hours that individuals could have been infecting people before they ever felt bad, meaning asymptomatic uh, transmission of this disease. The thing is, we've been talking about this since like December. This is common knowledge. He said this in April. So it's kind of like, like, where is he, where's he getting his information? Like, it's clearly not from doctors. It's not even from CNN or Fox News because they ran stories on it. I was just gonna say, it's also like, this is not unimportant information. This is like, a, the crucial thing about this virus is that it spreads asymptomatically. And that you know, in the scheme of things, like very few people die of it, but because you can spread it without knowing it, that's how it's infected millions of people in the United States. This is like the crucial piece of information. And he, he got up in this press conference and was just like, oh, I just learned like the funniest little thing. Like, like this is a, I, uh, it drives me nuts. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like him coming out and going, oh, I was unaware that babies were born because of sex. Shocking new information. Wow. Like, how do you not know this? We've been talking about it forever. Another one yeah. that I like to point out is uh, Ron DeSantos of Florida. I love making fun of uh, Southern uh, governors uh, who has declared a professional wrestling an essential business, um, which is lots of fun, right? I mean, uh, you know, for all of you office workers that are at home, non-essential workers, but feel confident, professional wrestling, essential business, because that is what the American economy rests on. Look, we got to stay entertained somehow. And I mean, those guys are really good actors. Well, you see Kemp, for example, make that statement, Luke. Do you think he really didn't know or is he sort of playing politics there? And if so, what's the game? Is it like because he he, he took a lot of heat for opening up a lot earlier than others and, and in a much broader way. And so is he sort of feigning ignorance or do we think he really didn't know? Personally, like. I think it made him look stupid rather than anything else. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's political strategy more than anything else. Um, we'll see how it's read uh, by the Republicans because that's really his base in Georgia. But I think these type of things are really going to come back uh, and hurt him in the next election because I think he is a governor that has not done very well during crisis communication during this entire thing. Um, and I think a lot of people are questioning what he's done. Well, and honestly, I think they're already coming back. I mean, Jen, you noted uh, in an earlier segment that, you know, while, while, you know, President Trump has languished in the polls. Uh, most governors have seen their numbers go through the roof. The only governor who really hasn't is Brian Kemp. He's his numbers have gone down. He's sitting at 39 percent approval in a pretty Republican state. So, Luke, I think there's something to that. And frankly, it gives me a little bit of it, it gives me sort of some encouragement that actually voters recognize this and respond to it and that average people are still hungry for good leadership. Well, I think uh, you you see, you know, kind of definitely there's a partisan division in how this is going on. And you see a lot of Republican governors choosing the path of leaving economies open, um, allowing more movement, all this type of stuff. And then you're seeing, you know, more Democrat, maybe liberal leading states, uh, you know, favoring the kind of public health aspect. But for most governors, even the ones that are favoring the open economy, they are coming to terms with the science and they're saying look these are the these are the risks that we take and this is all that's going on and these are the public health and these are the trade-offs and then you have brian kemp going well i didn't know science was a thing 
Um, and so like that denial, I think just really hurts him. And the fact that he's not just, he's not actively engaging with the fact that there's trade-offs in politics. And I think people respect that. And a lot of people are willing to take the economic trade-offs, but they don't really like responding to somebody who doesn't seem confident at their job. Well, and I think you see a lot of other politicians or pundits kind of responding in a political fashion. You know, one of my favorites, Luke, that, that has, that happened recently was Rudy Giuliani, uh, in an interview with Lauren Ingram that she was asking him about contact tracing, which pretty much every health expert acknowledges is super important for us to have some semblance of normal life until there's a vaccine. What Giuliani said was, uh, well, if we're going to trace everybody for COVID-19, you know, we should trace everybody for cancer, for heart disease, for obesity. A lot of things kill you more than COVID-19, so we should trace for all of those things. What he doesn't seem to understand is that those things are not transmittable diseases. Like the whole point of contact tracing for COVID is that it is an infectious disease, that it is contagious. Cancer is not contagious. I, I, I just, it, go, it goes to show sort of, not just that there's a lack of understanding, but there, there's like, even before he tried to understand it, there was this willful thing of, oh, this arguing for contact tracing could be bad for the president. And so therefore, I have to argue against it and like facts be damned. The other thing I've been uh, thinking about, though, is I'm, I'm looking at like our, our um, Republican governor, Brad Little. I'm thinking about Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine. I think both have uh, remained very popular um given their responses to coronavirus, I do wonder about what will happen with these Republican governors uh, if there is a second wave, when there is a second wave, and they have to enforce another set of closures. Like, I wonder if there is sort of like a... um, finite amount of voter patience, um, what's going to happen if this sort of economic pain continues and or worsens. So um, it could be it could be interesting to see if we see some pivots in terms of those leadership strategies or messaging more towards the maybe the president's or Rudy Giuliani's side of things if that if that happens. Well, you know, I'll say, uh, and you're welcome to disagree with me on this, but I think one of the things that separates Brad Little and, and Mike DeWine, if you follow some of the things they've done, is their strategies have been based first in policy and second in politics. Um, I mean, Mike DeWine was the first governor in the country to declare schools to be shut down. I mean, I, I think we all know that Brad Little is basically a policy wonk. I mean, he's a very smart individual, uh, I think, at a personal level. Um, and so I think they're, they're out there trying to make good policy first and then trying to sell it to the public. I think there's a lot of other governors that are focused on the politics first and then basing policy off of it. Uh, and I think that's something that really shifts this debate. Um, and so I, I do think that, you know, Brad Little here and Mike DeWine and some other Republican governors and Democratic governors are going to shift their strategies based on the facts on the table. Um, and then voters will come to terms with that. Um, I think other people like DeSantos and Brian Kemp and some other governors out there are basically going to do, are going to follow the White House and try to appeal to the Trump base. And we'll see how those, that, that actually plays out in terms of outcomes. We will indeed. And rest assured that when it does play out, uh, the Big Tent will be here to let you know about it. We will execute good crisis communication. You can take that to the bank. Uh, and so we'll bring that episode to a close for the day. Thank you, Jen and Luke, for, for joining me. And thank you all for, for continuing to listen. We'll see you all next week.